Can you hear me? Not too well? You better go to the doctor. I... <clears throat> Old joke. Jimmy, how am I doing now? Is that better? Good. Thank you. Um, happy Epiphany. You're all here for the Feast of the Epiphany, and I congratulate you and welcome you. Uh, we can now celebrate Christmas uh, and uh, the Feast of the Epiphany. Uh, there's a <clears throat> old saying in our family that our children have never had any trouble believing in Santa Claus because they know I couldn't afford those gifts under the tree. <laughs> I hope uh, your Christmas was as bountiful as ours. Um, we had tangible expressions of our bounty, but even more so those being symbols. Now, uh, the eternal and internal gifts, which we cannot deny, though we must enumerate. That is to say that we must go ahead and name and claim the gifts that we've been given that are not tangible. If we don't, uh, we live, I'm afraid, in despondency and despair. For we are good at naming the things we do not have. Human beings have a great ability, or at least the human beings that have been given to me to know, present company included most particularly, human beings are infamous for enumerating loss and pain, but somehow not enumerating those intangible, apparently mundane and ordinary gifts that have been given to us. And we must do so in order to be whole in order to have a balanced perspective on things. The reason pain hurts so is because it needs attention. Now, when things feel good, we tend to take them for granted. And so it is that we do not enumerate those things that feel good or those things that fit well or those things that are natural or those things that are normal such as the most mundane realities of breath and heartbeat. How long has it been since you enumerated uh, the thanks through awareness of the recognition that you have breath and your heart beats? <clears throat> Somebody here uh, has been offered the gift of children, running... <laughs> Some of the gifts are innumerable. <laughs> Someone here <clears throat> is aware, I don't know who it is, but in a group this size, somebody has been aware of heartbeat for we become aware of it by its absence. It is as though it's the silence between the words that gives the words their definition. 
who's aware of the silence? And so I begin today with a brief meditation upon what is the nature of awareness? <clears throat> I've been reading a book. I know that's I know that's hard for you to believe. <laughs> Entitled Plurality and Ambiguity, Hermeneutics, Religion, and Hope. Uh, probably not going to be given to you as a gift. <laughs> if, you, if you want it, you're probably going to have to order it or buy it yourself. But it's probably not going to be given to you. And I don't think, in spite of, here's one right here, Carter. Oh, good. I don't think they're going to make a TV movie out of this, but it is a seminal book for those of us who are concerned about what's going to happen to plurality and ambiguity, particularly because there has been a move, if not a movement, uh, within American thought an American religion towards exclusivity and toward a definition of opinion as being only one. Just a small symptom of that is Bloom's now popular book, Closing of the American Mind, which is seminal in thought, highly recommended for reading, ponderable proposition. In essence, Bloom is talking in criticism of the last two or three decades of American education. And when he says in a kind of summary sentence that when we began to no longer discriminate, we became indiscriminate. A good point. The problem, though, is the assumption that discriminate people know the difference between being discriminate and discriminating. Now what Tracy is interested in in his book on plurality and ambiguity is to say that the world is a plural world because we are plural human beings. Who of us is not aware of at least two personalities, the one we want to be and the one we are. Uh, who is not aware of his own plurality? Who is not aware, and I would say that this is one of the beginnings of maturity, when one is able to see paradox. And that is two contradictory opinions, both of which may be true. Um, of all the things that I say, this is the one that I say most often, but I say with most conviction, because maturity requires one to see both sides, and that is to see two possibilities, to see another possibility. If we can't see two sides which apparently are contradictory, paradoxical, contradictory ideas or meanings, 
both of which may be true. If we can't do that, we cannot be Christian. Now, what's one of those great statements that seems to startle you, but Jesus Christ is paradox and contradiction. Fully God, fully human. Can you hold that consciously? Can both be true? If they can't both be true, you can be a human being, you can have meaning in your life, you can be all kinds of things, but you can't be Christian. To be Christian, you must say God is in Christ. Fully God, fully human. There is a plurality in our experience of God. Creator, sustainer, redeemer, father, son, spirit. A community. That is not to say, of course, that we are polytheistic. As a matter of fact, the wisdom and genius of the genesis of the Hebrew Christian story is the ability to sustain one God in many experiences. We each experience God out of our own uniqueness. That's why it's difficult for me to legislate what your experience must be. I guarantee you that if I do legislate what your experience with God must be, it will be like mine. And I have difficulty when you come to me and say that you experience God in a way different from me, particularly if I'm insecure, because I feel as if I'm inferior because I haven't had the same experience that you've had. And those of us who are constantly overcompensating for our own inferiority do so with an air of superiority. The nature of ego inflation is that one's dark side is so dark it must, must be overcompensated for with a, a large superiority complex which is always masking an inferiority complex. And so in the pluralism of life, we will have different people expressing their experience of God in different words. And Tracy calls for the continuing awareness of the plurality in religion. And it's not to say we cannot have opinion, but it is to say that we must be aware there might be another opinion. Opinions, my father said, are like noses. Everybody has one. It doesn't mean that they are all correct or all truth, but it means we must be in conversation with them. Plurality. And we're being told in many segments of the world, from the Khomeini's to the Falwells, that this is the only way. From this administration to other administrations saying this is the only way. That plurality, it seems to me, is so helpful to me. Maybe it's just my personality. But it is mine. And I do own it. Because my fundamental problem, I think I have now got a way to talk about my fundamental existential problem. Now, I, it's the same one that, that Adam and Eve had. The same one... Abraham and Sarah had. The same one that we've all had all along, and it's got a variety of themes to it. 
I'm currently talking about it this way. That my fundamental problem, maybe even my original sin, is that I cannot comprehend the whole. I just can't comprehend the whole. Adam and Eve had that problem. There was a voice within them, symbolized without them, as it always is, that's either very healthy or very sick. Anytime that you take your own internal voice and externally symbolize it with something, that can be very healthy because you become aware. It's like a snake, a serpent. Or it can be very sick and say, it's not me, it's that snake. Depends on your awareness of whether you're using that as a language system to talk about your own darkness or whether you're projecting your own darkness onto something external and making them carry the responsibility for it. I mean, it's the same thing Paul said, I do the very thing I hate and the very thing I want to do I cannot do. He owned it. He knew who it was that couldn't do it rather than saying the devil made me do it. Adam and Eve wanted to comprehend the whole. We've been given that intuitive image of possibility. Now, one of my fundamental problems is, maybe my fundamental problem is, I cannot grasp the whole. I cannot comprehend the whole. I'm basically angry at somebody about that. I want to know the source of the knowledge of good and evil. In my own defense, not just in order to say they're good and they're evil, or to say this part of me is good and that part of me is evil, I just want to understand the difference. Because I've been so seduced by my own pseudo-sagacity that I knew the difference. It doesn't take much of a sage to realize that some of those things that we thought were so evil have been so good, and some of those things that we thought were so good were so destructive. I just want to know the difference, and I cannot comprehend the whole. I do the things I hate, and the very thing I love I cannot do. I cannot comprehend the whole. Which leads me to three, at least three, postures. And that is that I'm moving always, as Ecclesiastes talked about in the void, in the vapor, in the vanity, all come meaning the same thing. There's been, I think, a great misunderstanding. I'm indebted to Northrop Fry for this new understanding. But that whole sense that vanity, vanity, all is vanity does not mean that we live in vain. The word vanity really comes from the same word as vapor. It means we live in a fog. Things are vaporous for us. Vanity, vanity, all is vanity is the same concept that Paul talked about when he said we look through a glass darkly. I mean, vanity, all, I cannot comprehend the whole, and I have a kind of existential anger about the fact that I have been allowed to, called to, and sometimes even forced to make decisions with limited knowledge. Thank you, God, for the freedom to choose, but what about the knowledge to know the difference between good and evil? And God says, that's mine. You must look through a glass darkly. Vanity, vanity, all is vanity for you. It is within the vapor that you must make your decisions. And out of that 
reality of continuing existential choice. And once again, my existential choices are not just between good and evil. God knows I don't know the difference. And sometimes my choices are not between good and good, but between lesser evils. I have a kind of existential anger about the fact that I cannot comprehend the whole. And yet I've been given within me, deeper than awareness, given within me knowledge that moves me and calls me always on to asking the next question and the other question. I've never been satiated. I've never been satisfied. There's always, but before you leave, just one more question before I leave one more question. I cannot comprehend the whole. So what do I do? Well, I will either be, as many of us are much of the time, or as much of a part of us is much of the time, we will be in despair and apathy over the fact that we cannot comprehend the whole. I mean, what's the use? I mean, Shakespeare echoes in us continually. The reason I continually say this, it's the only piece of Shakespeare I've ever memorized. <laughs> I mean, it is a tale told by an idiot, full of sound and fury, signifying nothing. I cannot comprehend the whole, I don't know what's going on here, do you? A birth I did not request, a grave I cannot escape, I mean, what in the world? are we doing here? I put on a bulletin I've said before, I cry out of the darkness, who am I? And the voice comes back, who wants to know? <laughs> the fact that I cannot comprehend the whole leaves me with despair and apathy. Remember the basketball coach that called a young player over and said, you're ignorant and apathetic? And he said, I don't know what that means, but I don't care. <laughs> I mean, our despair and apathy are symptomatic of the human condition. I cannot comprehend the whole, so I despair as I look in the glass darkly. I mean, it's the same feeling we who are over 40 get when we try to read. I mean, it's all in soft focus. It's despairing and apathetic. I mean, what difference does it make? I have worked so hard all of these years and kept my nose clean and I'm bankrupt. All of those things that I wanted so desperately, I have. I mean, the despair that comes, and then the apathy, which is a result. I mean, who cares? I mean, what difference does it make? I mean, the other extreme, it seems to me, is authoritarian 
or totalitarian thought. And that is to say, since we cannot comprehend the whole, and rather than being floundering in the ambiguity and the void, this is the way it is, and anybody who doesn't agree with this cannot be a part of it. I mean, a, a sliver of a loaf is better than none. And so, oh, if you flounder uh, with your questions, we have the answers. But there is this condition, and that is, if you don't agree with us, you cannot be with us. As a matter of fact, you're going to hell. It's kind of a double negative. Not only you can't be a part of us, you're going to be damned to hell because you don't agree with me. Now, what that does for m many of us and for much of us, each of us, is answer that question of, I cannot comprehend the whole. I'm despairing and apathetic. And so somebody grabs a piece of the whole and says, this is the whole. It's very comforting. It gives me a direction, it gives me clarity, it gives me boundaries, it gives me rules. And there's a part of me and a part of society that really needs that. And it is necessary. But let us not confuse it with the whole. It is just another way, a better way probably in some ways than despair and apathy, but it is just another way to respond to the human situation is we cannot comprehend the whole. As I've said so often, the only professional I trust is the one who says, I don't know. It ain't them that don't know that worry me. It's them that think they know and don't. Will Rogers, Claremore, Oklahoma. It's okay to not know. That's what it means to be human, and it's not a predicament, it's a description. Now, it worries me that we would be in a society that would not allow differences of opinion even in one religion, much less among religions. You know, the current kind of debate going on in our sister tradition, the Southern Baptist Church. They're fighting over who's right and who's wrong. And there is only one way to be right. There's not a sense of being in conversation, but it's always conversion. I fear for Anglicanism. If we've had a gift to the body of Christ, it's been our ability to be inclusive. Now we are, I want to believe, like paradise, frustrating as it is, but there are all kinds of animals who've come to drink at this well. All sorts and conditions. Some who don't want to think, and they are given mystery, 
and some who want to live in the mystique of being a mystic and they're given to the reality. I pray that our tradition will not come become an exclusive one that says you must in order to and if you don't you will. But that we can be in conversation and Tracy in his book Ambiguity and Plurality is calling for those within the Christian religion and those among the religions of the world to be in conversation. If you only know one religion, you know no religion. You never understand your own religion until you understand another one. If you only know one religion, you know no religion. Can we not admit, finally, that there is plurality in the world? and that maybe it is a gift and that there is ambiguity that we look uh, through uh, glasses darkly and that there's some things not only that we don't know but that we cannot know and that we are in the human situation that we cannot comprehend the whole and out of that we make decisions that are destructive now, we basically carry with this existential choice and existential anxiety. And this anxiety, which is a fear of the unknown, expresses itself in anger. We have within us an existential anxiety. The difference between anxiety and fear is anxiety has no object. Fear does. I worked with a woman for a long time, one time, when I had time to do that. And my whole job with her was to move her from anxiety to fear. Human beings can become healthy and courageous when they know what it is that they're afraid of. Anxiety is a fear of the unknown. The unfocused fear is anxiety. Once we know what it is that we need to be afraid of, then we can become courageous. And she said, we worked nine months in order for me to be proud to say, I'm now afraid. Her anxiety was brought to awareness. She had an object now that she could deal with because she was aware. And of course, we know that it's haunting reality that the greatest sin is unawareness. Now, somewhere between despair and apathy and totalitarianism is this level that requires some maturity is to live in the plurality and the ambiguity. Uh, some will seize uh, this talk to say, he said there are no rules or he said there are no certainties. He did not say that. What I'm saying is that in addition to those, there are some ambiguities and there are some others. 
and that I said I cannot comprehend the whole. One of the ways that I have grown, though, is by being in conversation with those who held different opinions, not in order to convert, but in order to become more aware. I thank God for those who differ from me, for they have taught me who I am. Those who totally agree with me at all times and all places continue to support me and love me and make me feel well, but they do not help me grow. And so it is with the tension created with those who differ in opinion or thought or experience or personality or family history or geography. We must be in conversation. What is this? have to do with enumerating gifts under the tree or around the tree at Christmas. Well, it's because it seems to me that the gifts are there that we despair. What we really want, what we really need, has been given. It's enough. We cannot comprehend the whole, but we do not need to be in the pain alone. We are all in it together. Each of us has our own moments of quiet desperation, our own moments of apathy. Now, if you want to know what the gift is, it is the opposite of despair and apathy. It is joy and love. Hate is not the opposite of love. Apathy is. And the opposite of despair is joy. The fact that I cannot comprehend the whole leaves me despairing and apathetic. Uh, Given the extreme, then, of one who says, believe me, and I will make everything okay for you, and we will decide who's right, who's wrong, who the good guys are, who the bad guys are, who's going to heaven, and who's going to hell, and I will relieve all your anxiety about those questions. I will also end your growth. The reason we must enumerate the subtle gifts of heartbeat and breath drawn and touch is because those are enough. We're just not very often aware of them. Did you enumerate your gifts? Were you aware of heartbeat on Christmas Day or breath drawn? What about the touches? You know, I'm fond of Peter Davison as a poet who says it's hard to keep in touch when there's nothing to touch. What were your touches? What were the mundane touches 
The miraculous is in the mundane. The extraordinary is in the ordinary. And we must enumerate those. They will give us enough that we need not despair or be apathetic. It'll be enough. There won't be the whole. It won't be all we ever wanted or all we ever were told that we were be given. But it will be enough to sustain us for the journey. Just enough in your rucksack to make another year. Did you? Have you enumerated? They're going to be subtle. Most of us will be unaware of them, like we are unaware of breath and heartbeat. But we must bring them to awareness. If not, we will languish another year in despair and apathy. Or we'll be seduced by the truth in its narrow form, peddled by some authority. And so I believe that the truth is found in love and joy. And once again, I remind you that joy is not the same as happiness. Happiness is predictable. It's always where you expect it to be. Joy is always a surprise, and it's unexpected. So what are the subtle gifts that you were given? Today, at the altar, when the offertory was brought up, I was given a gift. Probably nobody was aware of it but me. Maybe even the giver of the gift was unaware of it. And in order to have enough, you must be very aware because the love and the joy is so obvious. We're always looking for the vapor for it to be elsewhere. And it's right here before us. When the ushers brought the offering up, a sweet man named Bill Herbert, who brought the offering up, when I reached out to receive it, he patted my hand. Nobody saw it. I did. It was a touch, just a touch. Tactile, visible, sensual. He touched my hand. The word I got was, you need not despair. Never be apathetic. You don't need to endure the pain alone. Just a touch. A small gift. Nobody was aware of it. But I was. Enumerated. Listed. Now known. Once I know it, I can never not know it. I've been touched. God with skin is the incarnation. We've been given enough. The good news is, if we could comprehend the whole, we would have nothing to look forward to.